Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Over a million Venezuelans have fled their collapsing economy and gone to Colombia. Colombia's social services are already stretched, and it's projected that a million more Venezuelans will arrive in Colombia in the coming months. MedGlobal provides on-the-ground medical relief in the world's most difficult humanitarian crises, and we're going to talk with a team that's just back from Colombia assessing how to help. With me is Dr. Zahir Salul, co-founder of MedGlobal, past president of the Syrian American Medical Society. Good to see you. Good to see you, Jerome. Thank you. Also with me is John Kaler, pediatrician and co-founder of MedGlobal. Good to see you, John. Nice to see you, Jerome. And on the line with us is Alexandra, who is a Venezuelan liaison for MedGlobal. Thanks for joining us, Alexandra. Thank you for the opportunity. I wanted to talk, first of all, about just seeing uh, the people flowing out of Venezuela. When I first saw a um, iPhone kind of picture of it on uh, on the web, and I saw the Simon Bolivar Bridge where people were streaming over. I mean, they were coming in a constant stream. They were uh, they seemed depleted, dehydrated, collapsing on the other side. Um, you guys were there. Uh, what was it like? I found that so shocking. Um, to me, it was a surreal experience. Uh, this is a bridge that separates uh, Venezuela from uh, Colombia. It's one of the main entry to Colombia. Um, so every day there's about 30,000 uh, Venezuelans who cross the bridge uh, back and forth. Uh, some of them stay in Col- Colombia and many of them go back actually to uh, Venezuela. So they buy goods from the Colombian city of Cucuta or uh, uh, Vela del Rosario, and then they uh, go back to their villages and cities. Um, it, it reminded me actually of the same experience that we had in uh, Greece, uh, where at the peak of the Syrian refugee crisis, where you had tens of thousands of refugees uh, coming to Greece, uh, going to Europe, uh, who have their belonging with them, walking basically for uh, uh, tens of thousands of miles to reach uh, uh, what they believe is safety and better opportunity for them and their children. Uh, it reminded me also of the po- poem of uh, one of the Somali refugees and that she says that people do not put their children on a boat unless uh, the sea is safer than the land. Um, and uh, what we're seeing in Venezuela and Colombia right now, similar way that people are leaving with their children because uh, they feel that Venezuela is not safe or it doesn't have the same uh, basic goods that they had before. I'm John Kaler. Yeah, I think what struck me most were two things. I had just, before, before we went to Colombia, I had just gotten back from the Tijuana border. Um, and there were literally tens of thousands of people crossing back and forth in, on the Simon Bolivar Bridge. The beauty of which was, if you turn in the middle of the bridge and face the Colombia side, you see Bienvenido a Colombia. And 100 meters from where you crossed into Colombia, there was set up water, refuge, Wi-Fi, food. It was a very, very receptive, uh, irrespective of how bad uh, these extra refugees would be to the, con- to the uh, economy or to the community. It was a very receptive uh, feel. The other thing that struck me was as we were standing on the bridge watching back and forth, talking to people, if you looked over off the bridge to the river— you could see literally from the bridge 10 people coming across in a river. So irrespective of how much legal transportation, how much people were able to come across, there were still people that knew that they had to go through the river to get there. 
We're talking with the team from MedGlobal about the situation in Colombia where Venezuelan refugees are pouring in. And I wanted to ask you, Alexandra, a bit about Venezuela itself and what's happening there. In the medical context, you know, it didn't really occur to me, but if you have a medical problem and you're in Venezuela and there is no medicine, one of the things you would do to get that medicine is go to Colombia. I imagine there, that, that kind of thing is going on. Yes. yes, that's exactly the situation. I mean, imagine being a senior citizen and having to migrate because you don't find the right medicine to treat your diabetes. Or imagine being a father and deciding, you know, your family has to leave home because you can't provide them with three meals a day. Or just imagine having to flee quickly from your country because you just got pregnant and you can't receive prenatal care in local hospitals. I mean, those, that is a reality, and those are the decisions that are being made by over 3 million Venezuelans who have already left the country. And this number continues to grow as it looks like 5,000 Venezuelans are leaving the country every single day, according to the Organization of American States. So, you know, if UNHCR accounts for 68.5 million people to be displaced around the world, that means that the Venezuelan count is almost 5% of that of that of that amount and and it's a population which arrives to nearby countries in the worst humanitarian conditions possible why because uh, there's a combination in venezuela of collapsed healthcare systems and massive food shortages and it's causing a humanitarian disaster i mean more than 7300 measles cases have been reported in venezuela since june 2017 more than 2000 suspected diphtheria cases were reported between july 2016 and september 2018 more than 400,000 suspected and confirmed malaria cases were also in 2017 so we're having also eradicated diseases coming back into the region wow. and coming back into the country you know there's more than 10 thousand cases of tuberculosis. There's more than 100,000 Venezuelans who have HIV and don't have the antiretroviral medicine for treatment. This is this this is what's basically happening. And you also have to take into consideration that according to different national polls, 67% of people have lost 11 kilograms of weight during 2017. 80% of Venezuelan households are food insecure. This is the situation in Venezuela, and that's why people are fleeing. Uh, John Kaler? No, I was just going to say the the, the 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 statistics that really strike me as a pediatrician is the amount of weight loss um, across the population. I mean, uh, she just mentioned that 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 eleven kilos. So you're talking about twenty pounds um, is not an unreasonable uh, amount to think that people have lost in one year. This is not this is not over the course of a decade. This is a, this is the change. Um, I mean, their healthcare system is literally broken. It's literally melted down. Um, inflation is at thousands of percent. Um, now, when these uh, people go to Colombia, I imagine a lot of them need medical care. And I was really surprised to see some of the statistics in your report about a hospital that was uh, nearby the border area, and it was a public hospital. And the percentages of people who were they were treating who were Venezuelans was huge. Um, most of the people who uh, cross the border uh, in the uh, border regions uh, get the help uh, in the uh, medical tents that are erected at the border. So, in, for example, near Simon Bolivar Bridge, there was this uh, medical tent. Uh, there was this organization who, that came from Argentina called uh, the White Helmet. 
uh, and they were providing care for the um, uh, migrants from Venezuela. And I remember this uh, young uh, woman uh, who was carrying her child. Uh, she was emaciated. I mean, it looks clearly that she has herself malnutrition, and her child is very small, and clearly he had signs of malnutrition. And she just crossed the bridge, and she wanted to seek uh, uh, the medical uh, help for her and for her child. She, I mean, she did not care about herself. She told me that she was on the bus for nine hours uh, trying to reach to the other side in, in Colombia. And we directed her to, to seek medical help. But this is one of tens of thousands of Venezuelans who are coming uh, to seek medical help. Some of them are treated in these um, uh, medical uh, tents, but many of them actually end up in the hospitals in different towns, not only in the border, but throughout Colombia, uh, getting uh, prenatal help for, for women who are pregnant, uh, HIV patients to getting their retroviral medications, uh, surgeries, basic surgeries, but there is a huge uh, backlog of uh, patients because the healthcare system cannot accommodate all of these extra influx of patients coming from Colombia. John? The other thing that's important to know is that the, the exact number of needs is really unknown because registration has actually stopped. Um, and so the people who are coming over, people who are actually in the queue for registration, uh, that even stopped. But the new people who are coming over in order to actually secure the ability, what would be the analog of a green card for us, uh, to, get, to get registered is no longer there. So these new, this new influx of people um, are going to be uh, a true burden on, on all humanitarian a activities. We're talking about the million Venezuelans and more that have fled their collapsing economy and gone to Colombia with people from MedGlobal, Dr. Zahir Salul and uh, John Kaler are co-founders, and Alexandra is a Venezuelan liaison for MedGlobal. And uh, coming up after the break, we're going to talk about constitutional democracy and how to save a constitutional democracy that's in trouble. If you can think of any, uh, just uh, <laughs> we might talk about them. Uh, now, uh, let's... Go back to um, – I was thinking about the number of Venezuelans who are being treated in these hospitals and w how they qualify for medical treatment. And I was reading in your report that there's like a layered um, qualifications. And so some people may not get the help they need. And people who aren't registered anymore, I, I would imagine, you know, you are throwing yourself into the, to the wind a bit. Um, how, describe what that's like, uh, Zahir. Uh, so we visited uh, several hospitals, uh, for example, in the city of uh, Validupar, which is also a border city, uh, but far from Cucuta. Cucuta is the main city near uh, Sumin Simon uh, um, Bolivar Bridge. Uh, so they told us that 70% of the births uh, in that hospital are Venezuelan women. Uh, unfortunately, many of them end up, end up with C-section because they did not have proper uh, prenatal uh, care. Uh, they said that they had problem with increased uh, neonatal mortality because of also the uh, malnutrition that's happening to the uh, pregnant woman from Venezuela and their children. Uh, they needed more support, for example, for medications for patients with chronic diseases. Um, the healthcare system in uh, Colombia, 60% um, is public and 40% private. Many uh, public hospitals who cannot do, for example, perform certain surgery, they refer that to private hospitals. Private hospitals are not accepting Venezuela 
as well in patients who do not have paper. So unless it's an emergency, you end up with large number of patients uh, who are from Venezuela who cannot uh, seek medical help because the fact that they d- they're not uh, called regular, they're not regulars, that means they do not have paperwork, and also the healthcare system cannot accommodate them or cannot pay for their care. That's why it's very important for uh, NGOs like ours, like MediGlobal, and there are also several NGOs that are working in Colombia to provide help for these patients who uh, are in need for help. That's why we were there. So we can provide, for example, uh, surgical support. We can have surgeons who can do medical missions and provide surgery for free. We can provide medications for chronic diseases, medications for HIV. We can provide training for local hospitals. So all of these things that we can do um, to help uh, the Colombian uh, doctors to deal with the crisis. And uh, Alexandra, I was uh, interested to read in the report that a lot of um, people who are going to Colombia right now are originally Colombians who went to Venezuela when the economy was riding high there. There were uh, peop- a lot, a lot of people who went there for because things were going good. Yes, well, Venezuela has been a country who historically has received many migration waves from different parts of Latin America, from Colombia, from Peru, from Ecuador, from Brazil, from Chile, from Argentina. Now the situation is the other way around, basically, and that's why it's so grave. I, I also like to just like focus on one particular aspect, which really, really causes me concern. It just for information, in 2016, the Ministry of Health actually leaked on numbers of child mortality and maternal mortality. These numbers, of course, were saying that they were, the child mortality increased 30% in 2016 and maternal mortality in 65%. And uh, I think that's something that Dr. Sahar and Dr. Pahler can also agree on is the amount of women who are also entering Colombia and Brazil in order to just give birth. It's that basic. I mean, in the state of Roraima, Brazil, Four out of ten pregnancies are Venezuelan mothers, making the birth rate jump from an average of 8,000 people to 12,000 births in 2017. In Colombia, there were over 4,000 births until this year. So I think this is another really important issue to also tackle. So I imagine when you're thinking about physicians you would like to round up to go to Colombia and help, it is OB. Well, there, there's, there were two universals every place we talked, and we went to four or five different places, including Bogota. The two universals were the need for uh, perinatal care, uh, OBs and and neonatologists. And the second was universal concerns about HIV, uh, which is of extreme importance because obviously uh, with poverty comes sex work. And with sex work, it doesn't matter to whom um, the HIV is spread. uh, it's, It's of utmost importance to the country. And uh, all the people who need antiretrovirals in Venezuela are going to Colombia. There, why, why wouldn't you if you if you can't get the thing you need to live? Definitely, there's uh, eighty thousand uh, patients who have HIV positive, who are HIV positive in Venezuela, who are not uh, getting their retroviral medications, and uh, many of them will end up in Colombia and neighboring countries. So that's a huge. Um, addition to the um, expenses in the healthcare system. Uh, what, what I'd like to say is the fact, in, in spite of all of these things, what we've seen from the Colombian uh, people and, and authorities is this welcoming attitude, which was very impressive. So this is a small country, Colombia. I mean, they have 50 million people, I think, but they accommodated about 1 million Colombian refugees within two years. This is the equivalent of getting 10 million 
refugees to our country here. And in spite of that, they were all welcoming. I mean, there was, of course, some concern about the increased expenses of the health care system, maybe increased mild, uh, mild increase in crimes and things like that. But overall, people were very accepting. And they said, well, they helped us during the crisis 15 years ago when, when there was a civil war in Colombia and they accommodate millions of Colombians and now it's our turn to help our neighbors. And I think this attitude should be also with us here in this country when we are seeing this <coughs> caravan of few thousand people who are seeking help and they are desperate for our help. Absolutely. Um, do, do you have some ideas about how the United States should help right now with Colombia. I noticed that the Navy sent a medical boat down to Colombia, and there are things that lots of people can do to help. I think that's a nice uh, symbolic gesture, but what uh, uh, the most important thing is to support the neighboring countries that are taking the burden of uh, the current crisis in, uh, in Venezuela, and it is expected to get worse. That means supporting Colombia, Brazil, Peru, and um, Ecuador. And these are the com- uh, countries that accommodate 3.5 million uh, Venezuelan um, migrants. January 10th is a milestone in Venezuela because that's the, where the new president or the current president will be sworn in again. And it's expected that after that, you will have further collapse of the economy and the country, and you will have an influx of more refugees. So um, things are boiling under the surface right now. It is very important to stabilize the region by providing more assistance to Colombia and other countries at this point before it becomes, before it's a tipping point. Um, Well, I'm amazed at um, all the things we've learned here about the the crisis in Colombia and Venezuela. I hope people check out MedGlobal, and if people want to find out how to help, uh, they can go to the MedGlobal website. Um, uh, They can go to our website. Uh, We have medical missions in Bangladesh, in Yemen, in uh, Syria, in Turkey, in Lebanon. We just had a team who came from Sierra Leone also, and now we are embarking on this mission. What's very important to know, and there was the recent uh, uh, report by Lancet, that most of the immigration that is happening in the world is happening to low-income and middle-income countries, uh, countries like Colombia and Peru and so forth. And uh, in general, migration is positive, according to the report. It uh, actually vitalizes the local economy. It creates jobs, creates um, opportunities for people. And uh, instead of uh, creating walls in in, in front of the immigrants and and the refugees, I think we should embrace them because this is consistent with our values as Americans also. And as far as MedGlobal is concerned, I'm going down to Bogota tomorrow for a cluster meeting. We've been invited to sit with all the other NGOs as as a plan evolves. John Kaler is a pediatrician and co-founder of MedGlobal. Zahir Salul is a co-founder of MedGlobal, past president of the Syrian American Medical Society. And Alexandra, thanks very much for joining us, Venezuelan liaison for MedGlobal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about how to save a constitutional democracy. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Democracy is under threat across the globe. Countries like Hungary, Turkey, and Venezuela have seen their democracies melt away in a hurry. In the U.S., our electoral system is distorted by gerrymandering, campaign finance issues, voter suppression. Institutions like the courts, the press, the civil service are under attack. Constitutional scholars uh, Tom Ginsburg and Aziz Haq have assessed what to do in their book, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. Tom Ginsburg is professor of law and political science at the University of Chicago. Good to have you with us on the line, Tom. Yeah, nice to be here, Jerome. And Aziz Haq is here. He is a professor of law at the University of Chicago. Good to meet you, Aziz. Thanks for having us, Jerome. Uh, I wonder, first of all, just to kind of get a grip on how far gone the U.S. is with its democratic erosion. I was just ticking off a few things, but I think the thing that really got me about the uh, last election cycle and recent election cycles is minority rule. We seem to be having more minority rule. You could go across the border to Wisconsin and see that 54% of the people voted for one party that got 36% of the House uh, in because of gerrymandering. And the same thing is practically true within our House of Representatives, the Senate, that we have a minority president appointing judicial people, which inflicts it on the judiciary. Uh, how bad is this disease? I mean, where do we, how do we grade out here? The U.S. Constitution is very old and uh, v- very far removed because of its age from Uh, the democratic ideal that we hold today. Uh, Many of its flaws are hardwired in. For example, the way that the Senate and the Electoral College are uh, demographically biased against uh, populous uh, urban areas and uh, uh, biased in favor of rural states means that, as you say, often it will be the case that a, a minority of the population, both across the states and within states, will have disproportionate influence and will be able to, in some instances, lock out uh, majorities, popular majorities of the electorate. Um, Tom, how do you assess how far gone U.S. democracy is? Yes, I'd agree with uh, Aziz there that a lot of the the things which cause this kind of um, trend that we're seeing away from majority rule are hardwired in. You obviously can add the Electoral College. And indeed, we might be in for a a set of political cycles in which we just have to get used to having presidents who don't get a majority of the vote. Um, I think I see some good signs, but I also see some bad signs. And certainly those um, instances you referred to Michigan and Wisconsin of uh, uh, a government that a party that had lost power seeking to lock itself in um, before leaving office by changing the rules of the game. That's a pretty, pretty severe sign. In our assessment of countries around the world, we saw that happened um, in Venezuela when Hugo Chavez had lost an election. Now we're seeing that same tactic here in the United States. We're seeing attacks on the public sphere. Uh, that look very similar to those things that go on in Europe, in uh, countries which have backslid. So um, there's a lot of evidence that uh, things are getting pretty bad pretty quickly. 
One of the things that you talk about in the book is different ways that democracies degrade. And usually, I think most people probably think they degrade fast. Somebody comes into power or there's a coup or something and democracy is torn up. A, a, a populace comes in and just runs roughshod. But in, in your assessment, you talk a lot about how it's really not usually like that. It's, it's usually a different story where, where institutions are degraded over time. Um, Aziz? That's right. Until about the mid-1970s, uh, the way that democracies failed around the globe was through coups or through the abuse of emergency powers. And the most famous example of this is the uh, end of uh, the Weimar regime in Germany in the 1930s. But since the 1970s, we've seen a move away from coups and emergency rule toward more subtle uh, forms of democratic backsliding. What now appears to be the most common form of democratic failure around the world is not the abrogation of elections by gun or by uh, force, but rather the use of legal and constitutional tools to rot away the quality of democracy from within. And one of the reasons why this has become a powerful uh, mode of anti-democratic action is that unlike a coup, unlike the use of emergency powers, the anti-democratic leader or faction can always say that they are acting consistent with the law and the constitution, even as they use the law and the constitution to piece by piece unpack the foundations upon which a democracy relies. And Tom, it seems like the the poster child for this is Hungary right now, but uh, it's spread around in Poland. There's lots of other countries who are doing similar things. Um, can Would you want to expand on that a little bit with some examples? Sure. Uh, so Hungary is a great example. And I should add that both Hungary and Poland are really interesting because they're led by lawyers <laughs> uh, who are <laughs> – very systematic, actually, about how they're going about doing things. It's not as if there's a single uh, series of events that happens in sequence in undermining democracy. Uh, we identify five different dimensions on which you can sort of observe the dismantling. And what we've seen in Hungary and in Poland in different orders is um, a series of systematic efforts to undermine elements of uh, democracy. So an example in Hungary uh, is that they initially just took over the courts, um, fired the constitutional court, uh, passed a new constitution uh, that allowed them to void all the earlier jurisprudence of a very liberal court, um, manipulate the electoral rules so they're likely to stay in power. And recently, we've now seen them consolidate control over the media. Virtually the entire Hungarian media is um, connected to Orban and his own private companies. He's also making a lot of money in the process. In uh, Poland, they've done some similar things. They uh, were sort of um, haven't gone quite as far in controlling the judiciary. The European Court of Justice just recently prevented them from lowering the retirement age of judges from 70 to 62. Um, but uh, they've done a lot of other things, and they do have a, a good deal of control over many of the institutions in society. So, you know, you see civil society, the media, um, you see the electoral machinery, and uh, and the judiciary being sites of attack. It's interesting that in Poland and Hungary, they they seem to put the courts at a very high priority. 
in our democratic erosion, it seems to be at a lower level, but it's certainly going on. Uh, how important are the courts in protecting a, uh, a constitutional democracy? Are they the the biggest deal or are they further down the, the road, Aziz? Courts are often the first uh, uh, place that an anti-democratic leader or force will uh, – uh, will attack the existing uh, democratic and constitutional order because uh, courts uh, committed to a neutral rule of law are potential barriers or frictions to anti-democratic rule. And we see that happening in a couple of different places. So in Colombia in 2012, the Constitutional Court played an important role in resisting President Uribe's attempt to extend uh, term limits a, a second time. In South Africa, the Constitutional Court has played a very important role in exposing and allowing the critique of corruption within the ruling ANC party, particularly associated with Jacob Zuma. But those examples are exceptional because in most instances, as in Hungary and in Poland, elected actors who are committed to this anti-democratic project usually strike first. They, they find ways to un undermine the court's authority. And one way of thinking about what's happening in the United States is, is in line with that, that, that the courts have been at the front line of a political project uh, for a long time. Uh, parts of the a uh, political project of the federal judiciary is, I think, fairly described as anti-democratic in character. So, for example, the commitment to what's called the unitary executive, the hostility to uh, legislation and executive action in favor of uh, voting rights and in, in favor of overt and implicit forms of voter suppression. Uh, so, in the United States, as a consequence of this long campaign, I think it's very hard to see how were there to be more moves of the kind that you've seen in Wisconsin and, and Michigan uh, and in North Carolina, courts would be instrumental in upholding and preventing further erosion of democracy. Uh, Tom, how do you feel about courts? Um, you know, listening to Z's talk, I was, I was like, oh, the unitary executive. Yeah, they really, they're, they're kind of, uh, I, I feel like our courts are a little bit um, pretty far down the road in, in uh, endorsing things that they shouldn't. That, that, that um, yeah, it's, it's, they're, they're kind of um, captured already. Well, that particular one is very disturbing because uh, it's done in the name of originalism or the argument sounds in originalism, but it couldn't be further from what the founding fathers would have wanted. Uh, the idea that, you know, they, they obviously feared tyranny and what is more tyrannical than a, a single executive who can, you know, at the extreme view, uh, hire and fire every federal civil servant and direct prosecutions uh, as, as he or she wishes. But more broadly, I think part of the story here is that, you know, since the 1990s, we've seen a global expansion of judicial power all over the world. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of us originally celebrated that. It sounded like, you know, something that was promoting the rule of law. Uh, but you have to always remember that the, the rule of law is actually the rule of lawyers in many cases. There are specific individuals and visions of the law that can be um, – that are contested and um, – it's just a, a law of physics that any institution that assumes a lot of power is going to uh, be a target for packing for political control. And I think we have certainly seen that in this country. 
Um, and we have seen that around the world, too. So the law is really central. You talk in the book uh, about the things that kind of operate outside the law that are important and that constitutions can't fix. Um, is there a limit to what a constitution can do to, um, to preserve a democracy? So any good functioning democracy depends not just on laws but on norms, upon uh, certain kinds of attitudes and behaviors on the part of important political actors. And this is so because it's very hard for anyone sitting down and writing a constitution, no matter how insightful, no matter how much a genius, to anticipate all of the different kinds of problems that can arise uh, when people are given power and, and allowed to uh, create new institutions of governments with that power. So for example, in the United States, there's no rule about the president directing federal prosecutions uh, in respect to his or her political enemies. And the way that the politicization of criminal prosecutions has been prevented at the federal level is through norms and understandings. It was a, a, a written but, but not enforceable rule, a norm uh, under the Bush and Obama administrations that White House staff were not supposed to make either implicit or explicit requests with respect to particular ongoing criminal prosecutions. And even today, we, we don't need to go very far back in time, we see the president uh, seeking to change the course of a particular criminal proceeding. In this case, it's Michael Flynn's sentencing. Right? That would have been inconceivable a few years ago because of a norm. Uh, Tom, do you want to weigh in on some of the non-constitutional protections that um, you underline are important in the book? Yeah, it's important to uh, understand exactly what institutions can and cannot do. And I guess, you know, our bottom line is that institutions are ne never foolproof. Um, and in particular, as Aziz just said, you know, they're always surrounded by these understandings and norms and such. All that said, uh, we also, you know, make a claim that institutions are important, constitutions are important. They can slow down processes of erosion and, um, you know, at the margin can really make all the difference. And so, so we think that, you know, this is one reason that we decided to write the book as lawyers. Not only is law really important in the backsliding projects, but we also think it's going to be important to, uh, in in defending it. And so so constitutions aren't completely useless either. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and we'll talk about how to change a constitution and make it better. After the break, I'm talking with Tom Ginsburg and Aziz Haq. They're authors of the new book, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and I'm talking now with Tom Ginsburg and Aziz Haq. They're scholars at the University of Chicago, and they've written a book about how to save a constitutional democracy. Um, and I wanted to go on to the ideal non-democracy backsliding model. Is If you were to de design a 
country and a constitution right now, would it look anything like the constitution that we've got now in this country, Aziz? Almost certainly not. There's almost no way for the United States to get to a new constitution, given uh, the way that amendment works under our system. Under Article 5 of the Constitution, uh, you need a, a supermajority of, of states uh, to agree to a new constitutional convention. Now, there is a movement to have such a convention, but... Led by ALEC and a lot of by, people, uh, yeah, libertarians who want a balanced budget. Jonesing for the balanced budget, right. Um, I, it's very hard to see, given our current state of uh, polarization, how a new convention could lead to anything good. Right. I, I think it could uh, open the floodgates to uh, uh, more uh, uh, violent and degrading public discourse of a kind that I think would be uh, uh, bemoaned by everybody. Um, but if, if we were looking for better models, uh, there are plenty of alternative approaches to uh, uh, entrenching democracy around the world. Uh, for example, South Africa uh, in the 1990s adopted a constitution with a bunch of innovations uh, that entrenched uh, election administration, uh, prosecutorial powers, and courts beyond political interference in ways that, although they haven't proved perfect, have actually worked reasonably well. So uh, if we look overseas, there, there absolutely are models, even if they're, they're probably out of reach for, for us here. Um, Tom, do you have some thoughts on the perfect model? Yeah, I mean, again, obviously, there's no perfect model that's universal. But in thinking about this challenge of backsliding, you know, there's some principles. Um, the Constitution of South Africa, which, as he's just mentioned, is one of many now uh, that constitutionalize the accountability machinery, which in our case is not very well protected. Uh, you know, there's not even a statute protecting the Mueller investigation. It's just some regulations in the Department of Justice, which could be changed really very quickly. Um, so trying to lock those things in is something that constitution makers you know, around the world now do. And that's something, again, where we're really lacking. So I think that's a that's a general principle. Uh, to move on to ways that we could tinker with the United States and make it better, uh, is do we just have too high a threshold to change the Constitution right now? Is there any way we can tinker with just that little part of it? It's very hard to change pieces of the Constitution like our amendment rule. And a more promising uh, avenue of reform is things uh, akin to the national po popular vote movement, right? Finding ways to work around our very rigid constitution uh, and promote uh, a more inclusive uh, form of democracy. So the national popular vote movement is a movement that would uh, commit states to uh, casting their electoral college ballots in ways that reflected the overall majority of votes cast in the United States for the presidency. And uh, if enough states were to sign on, would be a way to uh, take our, our uh, antiquated and deeply undemocratic electoral college system and move it toward a, uh, a form of democracy that we recognize as more consistent with our values today. In the book, you talk about something called horizontal accountability. Um, and there are different versions of this out there all over the world. Um, what's a horizontal ability, Tom? And what would, what would we do with it? 
Yeah, I think that uh, that simply refers to the idea that you have these uh, institutions almost like a fourth branch of government, uh, whose job is to uh, make sure that the other branches are, are are held accountable. So, you know, our founding fathers tend to think of three affirmative powers, uh, but there is a kind of fourth function of government, which is to watch the rest of them. Um, and that's something that I think really should be institutionalized and this, um, this if takes I the add, form you know, yeah. in terms of the generic design uh, stuff um, one of the things we talk a lot about is the importance of the opposition in democratic politics and the importance of constitutions that actually recognize that formally so in many countries you'll have an official leader of the opposition and you'll even have some um, rights of opposition parties to head particular committees to govern uh, and to um, to help play a role in accountability. And that's something I think is really important. In our politics today, we just see the demonization of the other side completely without recognizing that there is, in fact, a role in any functioning democracy for more than one party. How do you cultivate something like that in our system? How do you get um, Congress, which seems like it's a winner-take-all thing on committee ships and all that, uh, they, they just don't share? Yeah, I have uh, uh, some thoughts on it. I think the first thing is we need a politics of democracy, a politics that defend democratic institutions. Um, uh, Congress, of course, is partly as partisan as it is, and it is more polarized than the people themselves, as from what we can tell. That's what the studies show us. The reason it is so polarized is because of our election system, which is, of course, uh, in the hands of partisan state legislatures who increasingly draw the boundaries to protect themselves, leading to more extreme uh, partisans in Congress. So the whole system has this this quality that's driven by uh, winner-take-all politics at many of the state levels. And this is where I think that, uh, you know, a politics of democracy is really important. I was really heartened that Eric Holder spoke out against the New Jersey Democrats' attempt to uh, lock in their position in the state constitution. I don't think we've seen anything like that on the Republican side with regard to uh, Michigan or Wisconsin. Uh, But the idea of someone speaking up for democratic institutions, I think, is absolutely critical. One way of thinking about what is happening in Wisconsin and and Michigan and happened in uh, North Carolina is that uh, the Republicans in those three states decided to play hardball, decided to do things that would entrench their power beyond uh, the ability of uh, of mere voters to change. And what the Democrats proposed to do in New Jersey by constitutionalizing their gerrymander was playing hardball in return. I think that that's a mistake unless the purpose of the democratic hardball is to entrench a wider and more inclusive electorate, right? The way you break out of the cycle of uh, hateful, uh, polarizing uh, political competition is by broadening the circle of democratic inclusion. It seems like this whole gerrymandering thing is um, has an easy solution. Lots of states already have nonpartisan electoral commissions that do the redrawing, uh, <laughs> um, and a lot of states don't. Most of them don't. It, can we just get on with this and, yeah, and start absolutely. doing this? And, and Michigan, indeed, in the last electoral cycle by referendum, created uh, an independent uh, districting body. Uh, 
the the creation of these kinds of professional redistricting bodies is one of the most important uh, pro democracy changes that that uh, ordinary citizens can get behind and uh, can create, notwithstanding our uh, our antiquated constitutional framework. Another suggestion you guys have in the book is direct application of international human rights treaties and regional institutions being more involved. Uh, the United States has a kind of an anti-anybody-else-except-our-great-constitution theory about things. Um, Tom, do you have some thoughts on how, to, how the other countries are integrating these things? Right. So in some countries, uh, international human rights institutions can be utilized to uh, prevent backsliding or to slow things down. Uh, indeed, I referred earlier to that poll, that European Court of Justice case, not a human rights court, but a court of justice, which was um, uh, did slow down and ultimately reverse the attempt to lower the ages uh, of Polish judges. Um, you know, in general, these institutions aren't as effective as they could be. And we're actually seeing in some countries the perversion of the international human rights norms. So Evo Morales, the president of Bolivia, and um, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua both got their Supreme Courts to declare the term limits in their own constitutions to be unconstitutional or illegal in violation of human rights norms because they said, oh, you know, I have a, I have a direct human right under international law to run for office, and that's interfered with by term limits. Um, and uh, you know, this was they did this because they weren't able to get their own allies to even go along with them in their own power grab. So we see, as with everything else, it can be a two-edged sword. But um, the idea of an external actor having some involvement, I think, can be really important just to make sure that there are eyes on what is going on. I'm talking with Tom Ginsburg and Aziz Haq about their book, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. Another suggestion you have that is an interesting one is uh, getting multiple ratification of important issues. Uh, we see the British all in a knot over Brexit. Um, the Scandinavian countries apparently have uh, procedures where if you want to do something major, you've got to get a parliament, you've got to get a ratification, you've got to get another parliament to ratify it. Sounds like a pretty good idea, Aziz. That's right. A number of Scandinavian countries have a two-step constitutional amendment process. Uh, a parliament or a legislature proposes and passes an amendment, an election happens, and uh, the new parliament – Right, which is elected in the shadow of this constitutional amendment proposal, has to once again sign off on the uh, amendment. That means that there is a prolonged debate, not just among political elites, but among the broader democratic public about whether a change happens. And this kind of, of, of slowing down and uh, cooling off of political debate uh, – we think, uh, has produced a better kind of constitutional development uh, than what you see either in the United States, where constitutional amendments are very rare, or in other countries where constitutional amendments are dime a dozen. Tom, do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a, it is a really nice uh, system. Now, one, one of the virtues is that you know a lot of constitutional amendments in a lot of countries are just routine or technical. So most of the time, the public wouldn't really pay much attention. But if there's a, you know, a power grab, then people can mobilize around the amendment. We like that a lot better than referenda. 
in a lot of countries, um, there's been a shift towards direct democracy, returning power to the people, and adoption of policies by referenda and such. And referenda, although they sound good on paper, can often be manipulated. Uh, of course, many American states, uh, California being the maybe most well-known example, have a lot of referenda, a lot of initiatives, and it's often very confusing for the public what those things are calling for. Um, so, you know, we... we we believe in Republican institutions in in the small r sense of uh, uh, Republican form of democracy. Um, but the point is that you have to give some check on that to make sure that it doesn't uh, doesn't lead to a power grab. We've just got a couple of minutes left. Um, any last suggestions for the United States as it uh, goes about its business here? One of the the really important failures of the original Constitution. Uh, comes in uh, Article 1, Section 4, which I'm sure everyone has at their their fingertips. Uh, But that's the clause of the Constitution that left it to the states to set their own uh, voting rules and to run their own elections. And it's turned out that this is a a colossal mistake because states have done this in in ways that are of of wildly varying quality. Yes, they have. Uh, That was a euphemism. And uh, if one looks around the world, there is broad agreement and commitment on the idea that you don't just need uniform election administration, but you need uniformly high election administration. And indeed, in in some countries where anti-democratic leaders have have tried to push the envelope, uh, it's been uh, these neutral, independent, national-level election administrators that have stood in their way. Sri Lanka is a good example of that. So administering our elections better would be a, a big first step. Tom, do you have a last shot? Well, I'd agree with that. I think the phenomenon of partisan secretaries of state running in elections and then counting their own votes is something we would find completely laughable if it hadn't just occurred twice in our own uh, in our own country. So, fixing the elections um, and you know advancing a politics of democracy, I think, are what may save us in the end. Tom Ginsburg and Aziz Haq are authors of the new book, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. They both teach at the University of Chicago. Great to talk with you. Thanks for uh, informing us about these vital issues. Thanks so much. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to have uh, Tony Sarabia drop by and do a last Global Notes with us. Tony is taken off after Friday, and we're going to, he did Global Notes with us for many years, and we're going to have him back with a little live music tomorrow and say goodbye to Tony. So hope you can join us for that. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. Thanks to Kyle White Sullivan for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.